Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I imagine it was a day at the lake, just like any other day at the lake. The water was still, the air was cool. Peter and Andrew gathered up their nets and they pushed off from shore. James, John, and Father Zebedee packed up their belongings, their lunches, got ready for a day of fishing. Such was life six days a week for the good folks who lived on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. It had been that way for generations, probably. Peter learned the trade from his father, and his father learned the trade from his father, and so on. James and John were still in training, it appears, or maybe just working with Dad. I imagine Father Zebedee showing them the ropes. This is how you do it, James. Watch close. Did you see the way I flicked my wrist at the last second? If you do that just right, the nets won't get tangled up. It makes it a lot easier later. Now it's your turn. You try. I'm not sure if you've ever had the experience of joining a fishing crew for a day or if you've ever volunteered to work a day in some trade that you don't have a lot of familiarity with. It's a little awkward at first. Your hands aren't used to the motions. You make rookie mistakes and then you have to retrace your steps. When I pastored a small or a medium-sized church in Owen Sound, Ontario, just for the summer, a lot of my parishioners were dairy farmers. So I thought I'd better try my hand at milking cows one day. I thought I'd make some, build some bridges with the, the farmers. But I wasn't much use. I watched a 14-year-old boy hook cows up to the milking machine. He did it so swiftly and confidently. Then he looked at me standing there with nothing to do, and he said, the next cow is yours. Well, that cow walked up to the milking station. Easy girl, I said. And, oh, I'm sorry in advance for sticking these vacuum cleaner-like things on your udder. As I was taking aim, a whole bunch of bloody goo fell down and coated my hands. After birth, I was told. This particular cow had just given birth, and everyone in the parlor laughed at me as I was shaking with sticky, bloody glue on, <laughs> uh, goo on my hands. I quickly handed the suction cups back to the teenage boy. He had been schooled in the milking business. I was schooled in books and sermon preparation. Well, Peter and Andrew, James and John, their business, their trade, they've been discipled in the fishing industry. Their dads showed them the ropes, and through years of emulation, practice, and reflection, the craft had, in a way, made its way into their bodies. They didn't have to think about their actions. They could just act, and they were efficient at fishing. This is really the pathway of an apprentice. If you want to master a skill and go and work with you go you go and work with someone who knows what they are doing. And eventually with the right coaching and practice, you become like the one you are apprenticing un under. And then you are ready to go out and get your own net and get your own boat and go fishing. Here's the pathway of an apprentice. Be with, become like, continue the work of. Another way of describing the apprenticeship model of learning goes like this, and I like this a lot, these steps. 
I do, you watch, we talk. I do, you help, we talk. You do, I help, we talk. You do, I watch, we talk. You do, someone else is invited in and watches you. You talk with them. Repeat, repeat. This is how skills are passed. You join up with someone who knows what they're doing. Slowly they give you more responsibility. You reflect with them how that's going. Slowly you master the art or the trade. And then it's time to share that with someone else. If you think about your life, in a way you've learned how to do almost everything through this process. You learned how to talk by being with people who talked to you and taught, and taught you the nuances of English grammar. And then eventually you could talk confidently on your own. You learned how to make your bed because one of your parents spent months of their lives training you how to tuck in your sheets and pull up your covers. This is true for driving a car. It's true for learning a musical instrument. It's true for mastering a trade. You see someone who does it well, you admire them, you say, I want to learn from you, teach me, and then you emulate them. Slowly over time, you're capable and can do it on your own. There are, are apprenticeship programs available for just about every kind of skill or trade, but what about life itself? Who do you have in your life that is showing you the ropes, showing you how to live, who's training you to seek what is good and to live a life that is rich and full and truly worth living. Religious leaders, teachers in Jesus' day, were men called rabbis, and they used an apprenticeship model of learning with their pupils. They called their students Talmudim. That's Hebrew for disciples. We call it disciples in English. To be a disciple of a rabbi in Jesus' day would have been a great honor. Given the intensity of the learning experience, a rabbi could only have so many disciples at one time. You had to apply. Only the best and the brightest were accepted. To be a disciple was a live-in experience, 24-7 on-site learning. You had to leave your family and cling to your teacher. And... Uh, uh, the goal was to be with in order to become like. And so to that end, disciples didn't just read the assigned text in order to regurgitate the right answers on the exam. What a terrible way of learning that is, right? Rather, they shaped their living and learning based on the pattern set by the rabbi and who's, whom they were a disciple of. If your rabbi retreated to, to pray, you retreated to pray with the rabbi. If your rabbi fasted, you fasted. If your rabbi got up in the middle of the night to meditate on the law, then you got up in the middle of the night and meditated on the law beside him. Be with. Become like me. I do. You watch. We talk. You do. I watch. We talk. The goal for rabbis was not to create a big crowd of converts, rabbis didn't host big tent revivals. The goal was cultural influence through the multiplication of people who had become like the rabbi and were capable of training others in the way or the school. 
of the rabbi. So 12 disciples can develop 12 more. Uh, 12 disciples can each develop 12 more disciples each. Does that make sense? So that's 144 disciples. 144 disciples can disciple 1,728 more disciples. And so on. That was the pattern. Now with this background in mind, let's revisit Matthew 4. Notice Jesus. Notice what he's doing. He's taking on the role of a rabbi. He's calling people to be with him in order that they might learn from him, become like him. The one major difference between Jesus and the other rabbis is that Jesus doesn't wait for disciples to apply. He calls to them. And he seems to prefer folk with calloused hands. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, come, follow me. You have been trained to catch fish. I will train you to catch people. And at once, the text says, they left their nets and their families and followed Jesus. You have to wonder what was going on in the disciples' minds and hearts as they heard this call and dropped everything in order to follow this relatively unknown rabbi. Maybe they had heard Jesus uh, and his inspiring sermon the day before when, when Jesus started preaching. He said, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. Or maybe they were getting a little tired of smelling like fish at the end of the day and they were looking to make a change. Whatever the discernment process, all we see is obedience. Immediately they left their craft to learn a whole new craft. And they became apprentices of Jesus. Bible scholar Dale Bruner believes that the obedience the fishermen uh, show or highlight in this passage, uh, it highlights not the strength of their character, but the spiritual power of the word and the one who calls. This rings true to me. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, we know these guys. We know them from the rest of the story. We know that they have a lot of time, a lot of trouble learning to follow Jesus. Their obedience here is laudable, of course, but later on they're going to be uh, rascals, not always the most obedient of disciples. So the power here to turn and to follow Jesus, it's, it doesn't come from within them. What we're seeing is the power of the word, the call of Christ at work in their hearts. In the beginning at creation, God's spirit hovered over the waters of chaos and God said, let there be light and there was light. And here now in the beginning of the new creation, the spirit hovered over the sea of Galilee. Jesus said, come, follow me. And the disciples left their nets and followed Jesus. There's a lot that can be said about the community of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ. But one of the foundational things we must say is that the church is not primarily a gathering of the willing, but the creation of the one who calls. Does that make sense? People, of course, congregate in groups for all kinds of reasons. People join a church because they want moral instruction for their children, or, or maybe they're craving a little social connection with people who are like them. So we shop around and we, we look for a place that feels like home. These are all very human reasons to, 
join a church, and many a church rises and falls based on the desires of the people who gather. And some of these things are not un unimportant. I mean, I remember uh, uh, the story of old Mariette Brooker. You guys remember her? She died a few years ago. She came into this church not because she was looking for Jesus. She came in because she was looking for people who spoke the same language as her, because she was a new immigrant to Canada. But while she was here, meeting other people who knew Jesus, hearing preaching about Jesus, the call of Christ came, and she responded with faith and was baptized. The Greek word for church is ecclesia. It's a compound word, ek, equals, you can change the slide. Is it working? There we go. Ek equals out of. Kaleo equals to call. The ecclesia is the gathering of the called out ones. I find that's helpful. The Heidelberg Catechism gets this exactly correct in the question and answer on the church. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, that Jesus, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, he gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. The church is the community that Jesus forms, he calls. The voice of Christ echoes throughout the centuries, echoes throughout the world whenever the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and Jesus is lifted high. There's this response. People hear the call and they come out of the world and they come to him. The second important thing we learn about Christ's community here, the ecclesia, the called out ones, is that it is fundamentally a community of apprentices called out of the world to a discipling relationship with Jesus Christ, that we might become with him and like him, and so do as he did. Modern Christians have reduced faith to conversion. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it, period, end of story. We can just spend the rest of our time worshiping and thanking God for his salvation. And of course, that's a good thing that's a great thing to do, and if the church doesn't preach that message, we're in trouble. And yet there's this call out of the world to a relationship with Christ, and that relationship is fundamentally an apprenticeship. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for their mission in the world, he didn't say, go into the world and make Christians. Rather, he called his apprentices to himself, and he said, Make more apprentices, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, I have rabbied you. I have trained you in the ways of the kingdom. Now go and train others in the same way. I don't know about you, but clear teaching and training in the ways of Jesus was not central to my formation as a Christian. I was taught to be thankful to Jesus, 
to adore Jesus through worship. Uh, I was taught to fear God and to keep the Ten Commandments. And certainly these things belong to the life of a disciple. But apprenticing my living to Christ's life, being with him, becoming like him, learning to do what he did, empowered by his spirit, this is kind of new for me. But the call to a discipling relationship with Jesus is its so clear in the Gospels, called out of the world, called into a new craft, a new way of life, life with Christ. I want you to hear me correctly here. I'm not saying that something other than faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. We are not justified by our discipleship, okay? What I'm saying is that discipleship is part of the outworking of our salvation. And furthermore, I mean, it's, it's how we experience the fullness of life with God. How good and important it is to be discipled by Jesus. I mean, we come to Jesus having been discipled by heaven or hell knows what in this world. We come to him trapped in lust, having been discipled by the porn industry. We come to him feel filled with fear because we have been discipled by the news cycle. We come to him hiding our true selves, hiding behind makeup and embellished stories. We come to him with a fake smile because we've been wounded by our families of origin or we've made choices that we're ashamed of and we don't believe that he will love us for who we truly are. So we hide. We've been discipled to hide. Here's the thing. The world is always discipling you all the time. The advertising industry preys on your insecurities and desires for pleasure, status, and security. They fan them into flames so you pull out your credit card. Okay? They do that very well. The tech industry builds features into their apps to keep you coming back Clicking, uh, clicking likes to stimulate the dopamine hits, and then they get you with more advertising, which makes you feel poor, lonely, and ugly. That's what, just what you need when you wake up in the morning, right? A little scroll through Facebook to make you feel poor, lonely, and ugly. Next thing you know, you've been discipled into weird and dark places. Maybe you're in debt big time because you're trying to keep up with people around you. Or you're crossing boundaries you never thought you'd cross just to re receive affirmation of someone you really want as a friend. Here's the thing. Discipleship happens. And if it's not cultural and the cultural forces around us, then it's celebrities or the latest guru. Ideally, it can be your parents. Ideally, it can be the church. Elders, it can be the, 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 the faith formation program that's forming your wants and your desires. We're in a battle for the formation of our souls. It's happening all the time. An acquaintance of mine in Ontario is really into video games. He's so into it that he watches other people play live on YouTube. Then, after learning some tricks, he goes back to his own game and tries to implement what he has learned. Little does he know that he's an apprentice to that gamer. Next thing you know, it's 4 a.m. 
and you're still at the computer, bloodshot eyes. Who's discipling you? Who's shaping your loves in your heart? What's the end for which they disciple? Do they have your wholeness in view? Your fullness of life? This, this, uh, are they, do they have your good in mind? Or are they just hoping that you pull out your credit card or do something for them? And Jesus, his heart breaks when he sees people wandering aimlessly around like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, he says, come to me, all you who are beat up by the world, who are weak and heavy laden, who are distracted and confused. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will train you to live a whole life in my Father's kingdom. Come to me. Let me disciple you. If Jesus thought there was a better way to live other than in submission to him, a disciple of him, he'd be the first person to tell you to take it. Dallas Willard said this. Dallas Willard also said this quote, and I've been thinking about this one for the last month. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Is it true? That's the question I've been asking of that quote. Is it true? Can Jesus change a racist heart? Can Jesus restore a broken marriage? Can he revive and forgive someone who's crippled and hiding in shame? Can he break the cords of generational sin? Can he heal my hidden wounds? Can he transform my greed into generosity, my lust into service, my anger into patience? Can he raise the dead and give us life eternal in his kingdom? Is it true that there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve? I think Willard is on to something. And we'll never know, actually, until we apprentice ourselves to him and trust him, to trust that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I think that Peter, Andrew, James, and John would encourage us down this path. They spent three years with Jesus, and afterwards they gave up their lives in order to introduce people to him and disciple others in the ways of his kingdom. And the invitation comes to us here today. I mean, I just think it's amazing that people have been making disciples in Jerusalem, and it's expanded, and it's expanded, and it's expanded. And here we are, very far away from Jerusalem, still gathering to learn from Jesus, to be with him, to apprentice our living so we might live like him. Here's the call. Come, follow me. Trust me. You're beaten up by the world. 
You're tugged this way and that. You're pulled different directions by different masters who do not have your good in mind. Trust me. Come out of the world. Come to me. That's the call. And as we come out, as we come to him, he pours his life into us. And slowly, we learn to live like him. It can become second nature. It's a little awkward at first. We're trying to learn the craft. Then slowly, his way gets into our body. And it becomes more natural. And this is where the spiritual disciplines kick in. You see, you can try your whole life to be like Jesus. You can try to be as patient as him, as loving as him, as full of grace and truth as him. But trying really hard rarely produces the results we want. I try really hard every morning to be patient with one of my children in particular, who will not be named. Ten minutes in, I'm, I'm losing it internally, right? I'm restraining myself. But that's not patience, really, because I'm really angry inside. So I can't just, I've learned I cannot try my way to patience. I need to train my way to patience. The principle is simple. If you want to run a marathon, you can't get up one morning, watch people running a marathon on TV, and then get out there and try to run a marathon. It's not going to work like that. You have to train your body through practice, routine, ritual. If you want to play the piano like a master, you can't just watch Chava play for a while and think, oh, I'll just go up there and bang, 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 bang. It doesn't work like that. You need to practice scales. Endlessly practice scales. Learn theory. If you want to show up and play like a piano master, there's a whole iceberg of years of training that's underneath that. And then one day you experience the freedom of just being able to sit down and play. And what a joy that is, right? It's in your body. The spiritual disciplines are ways that the Spirit, are means that the Spirit uses to train us to become like Jesus. They're the, they're the scales of our life with God. And I look forward to introducing them to you. I want to finish with that quote from Matthew that Jesus says to his disciples. I think it's for us today as well. Come to me, all you who are weak, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not out to break us. Not at all. He has our good in mind. And he loves to pour into us that we might grow up and find wholeness in him so that we can live fully into his kingdom and invite others into that process as well. This Lent, let us apprentice our living to him. Let us be with him so we can become like him and do as he did. Amen.